And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Yeah. All real man. Love is, is love. too weak a word. Stay back. I love you. I love you. I love you. I did as Don't laugh! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie. Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to... Parasite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 198 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. Time of recording, 11.07 a.m. on June 14th, 2020. Here to join me today, I have Michael Schwartz. Hello, everyone. Dan Baer. Good morning. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. The lovely Nicole Ackman. Hi, everybody. And also joining us as a guest here today, we have Kaya Shinyada from Scratch Cinema and Obscure Media. Kaya, how are you today? Hello. Good. How are you? Doing well. Doing very well. It was a uh, quiet week up until yesterday. <laughs> um, <laughs> or was it yesterday? No, it was uh, It was Thursday, right? Friday. It was Whatever. Friday. It was this week. <laughs> So we're going to talk this week about some really, really, really earth-shattering, breaking news in the world of awards season. Uh, We're also going to talk about the trailer for You Should Have Left, starring Kevin Bacon and a much younger Amanda Seyfried. Uh, We're also going to be going over the polls, talking about some other film news. But first and foremost, let's start off with what everybody's been watching uh, this past week. Why don't we start off first with Michael Schwartz? You know, Matt? You're going to be very proud of me because I watched three movies this week. Jesus. This is an accomplishment. This is a big deal. Three new three new movies, right? Uh, sort of. I watched uh, two for the first time and one I hadn't seen in 10 years. Okay, but, all right. Uh, so it felt new. So I'll start with the first one I watched. Uh, I watched Almost Famous for the first time in a decade. Which is my favorite film of 2000. So. Well, for good reason, because it's a wonderful movie. Uh, I wasn't on last week, but I just watched Jerry Maguire before for the first time again in years. So I was in that Cameron Crowe realm and wanted to you know, see the one that won him the Oscar again. And it is an excellent movie. This is not a surprise to anyone. Uh, Francis McDormand, I think, gives best performance in that movie. Just love seeing it again. And uh, yeah, good Oscar win for Cameron Crowe. I then watched another movie from 2000 because, again, I was getting nostalgic. I had never seen this movie before, but everyone says, oh, Michael, you need to see it. It's right up your alley. So I watched for the very first time Rod Lurie's The Contender. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised you've never seen that before. Yes. And uh, first of all, excellent performance from Joan Allen. Again, not a surprise to anyone. She was nominated for it. Uh, She's wonderful as always. Movie itself is very much... uh, Hollywood idea of how the Congress works and it's entertaining, but not informative whatsoever. And it's very idealistic and, you know, wearing its liberal heart on its sleeve. And that's not always a bad thing, but it just, you know, is not the movie I was expecting it to be, but it was fine. I enjoyed it for what it was. Sure. And then last night, the big one that I'm sure a lot of us watched, I uh, watched Spike Lee's new joint, the five bloods. Yeah which I thought was magnificent. I think it's one of his best movies or one of his best joints, I should say. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Just, you know, it's raw and overlong and, you know, all over the place in terms of tone, but I think that's all intentional and works 
to its credit, and the performances are all spectacular. Delroy Lindo, uh, who's a borderline lead, I think, you know, they could campaign him either way. Regardless of where they campaign him, it is surely one of the performances of the year. He is just magnificent, giving monologue after monologue, playing this complex character, sort of like Hearts of Darkness, uh, Apocalypse Now type, you know, role by the time you get to the end. It is a magnificent performance, powerful film, movie of the moment. And uh, I'm so glad Netflix has it out there for everyone to see. I actually finished the movie last night and then went back to watch certain scenes again just to, you know, take them in. Some of his monologues are just so powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. Chills, uh, absolute goosebumps, especially um, the right on monologue uh, near the end. It just was unreal. And his performance, I agree with you, is going to go down as one of the best ones of the year for sure. Yeah. Um, Nicole. Yeah, so I haven't gotten around to watching The Five Bloods yet, but that's coming soon. Uh, but what I did watch this week was I watched a couple of movies from 1993 because I was on uh, an episode of Kevin Jacobson's podcast. So I watched The Remains of the Day, which is a phenomenal film. Great performances from Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. And then I also watched In the Name of the Father, which, first of all, I think watching a film about uh, false imprisonment really hits hard right now and kind of about a corrupt system, even though this one is set in... Uh, the UK dealing with the, the way that the British treated the Irish. Um, but fantastic, again, fantastic Emma Thompson performance. But also I think it's now my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis performance. So mm. that was really great. I also watched a couple of new releases. I watched Short History of the Long Road, which is coming to uh, streaming soon. Really fantastic uh, leading performance from Sabrina Carpenter, who I definitely did not know was capable of that performance and i also watched artemis fowl and um <laughs> kenneth Branagh did me so dirty with that movie <laughs> uh and the other thing i watched is my sister my little sister's been reading the hunger games books for the first time so we've been watching the movies and i watched catching fire uh friday night and i gotta say those movies hit real differently right now um <laughs> particularly in the way that they deal with things like police brutality and, um, you know, the way that the media distorts what's actually happening and things like that. So I think it's a good time to revisit those, um, actually. And it, it was very interesting to see and also just really uh, interesting to see a very, you know, much younger Jennifer uh, Lawrence performance. Yeah. Definitely. I still maintain like Hunger Games could have been like one of the all time great franchises if uh, Mockingjay just didn't shit the bed. Uh, both parts one and two, in my opinion. No, but, um, I'm Catching Fire was great. Yeah, those first two are yeah, really great. Fire is great. That's, yeah. Catching Fire is so good. The first one is so good. I never saw either Mockingjay, and we're going to watch them both next weekend, and I am not looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> I, saw it, I saw it because it was the last of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And like that was definitely like a reason to check them out, despite the uh, lower reviews. And of course, I wanted to finish the story. Uh, yeah. But yeah, dis disappointing, to say the least, uh, compared to the first two, which are just fantastic. Um, but yeah, excited to hear what you think. Well, wish me luck. Uh, Dan Bear. <laughs> Uh, so I watched The Five Bloods, and for my thoughts, you can listen to our review podcast that we did yesterday. Um, in short, I liked it. I don't think it's Spike Lee's best movie by a long shot, but it's really good, and there's a lot to admire. And uh, Delroy fucking Lindo, man. Oh, that is so good. Um, I also watched screener for Mr. Jones, which has 
been out for a while, but not in the U.S. yet. So I don't think I can actually talk about it. But I will say that it is based on a true life story that is so fascinating and could not like this could not be a better time to revisit that story or learn about it for the first time. I I had no clue about the story either before I watched it. And wow. Um, And other than that, oh, I um, (laughs) everyone is going to laugh at me because I had not seen this movie before somehow. But uh, I watched Nine to Five for the first time. Oh wow! Really? That's a classic. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. It's just one of the like. There are so many movies to watch, and there's only so many hours in a day, sort of thing. But like, if if all that movie had given us were those three dream sequences in the middle, it would have been enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's my heart. It's so much fun. It it's a total flashback to a very specific moment in time with all the production design and costume design and even the you know the performers in the movie that they have playing those roles. But it, it was a lot, a lot of fun and I it's very easy to see why it is a classic. I went to a screening a few years ago and they gave everyone a mug, a yellow mug that's a nine to five and then on the other side it said Ritter Rat Rat Poison. josh parm uh so this week i haven't been watching too many newer movies um so basically 19 for you right (laughs) (laughs) something like that um i did see the five bloods which as dan mentioned we have a podcast review of it i did enjoy it quite a bit it's very messy but what spike lee movie isn't it is sort of working for the film in some regards and yes i mean Dory Lindo, what else is there to say? Incredible. Definitely is a movie that you should see. Uh, no question about that. Uh, and the only other movie that I watched this week that I hadn't seen before is this film from 1984 called Another Country. And oh, yeah, so I, good. I, it is uh, a period piece that's set in Britain looking at um, the school system there got Rupert Everett, um, Colin Firth, Carrie Elways, and they're very, very young. It's almost like <laughs> distracting <laughs> how young everybody looks in this movie. And beautiful. <laughs> oh, there is that oh too. Um, I, I mentioned oh. that I think that Rupert Everett in this movie is like the prototype of what Timothy Chalamet has become today. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it, it's a good movie. It's very well acted, really good performances in it. It's I wouldn't say it's like amazing, but it's a nice like little drama that I really enjoyed. Awesome. Really cool. And Kaya, we're up to you now. Um, I've been watching a lot of documentaries recently. Um, this week I watched uh, Black Panthers by Agnes Varda, and it was fantastic. Nice. And I watched a documentary called Shakedown about um, a lesbian club in the 90s. I've never heard of this one before. And it was fantastic. Yeah, it came out in 2018, and it's only like an hour and 10 minutes. Super fast, really good. Would highly recommend. Where Where is it streaming right now? Um, If you just look up Shakedown Film, it's on their website for free. Oh, nice. Yeah. Even better. Mm-hmm. And then 
Last night, I watched uh, William Friedkin's Cruising with Al Pacino. Oh, wow. It was okay. (laughs) (laughs) The acting was really good, but, like, the story was kind of, like, it was a bit lackluster for me. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That was an odd movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's an odd with itself. (laughs) Uh, So, what did I watch this week? I watched a I, I watched a lot of stuff on re, like rewatched a lot, um, so I rewatched I Am Not Your Negro, mm. Ugh, uh, which so is good. still just so powerfully told with archival footage and James Baldwin's you know beautiful inspiring words. Um, I don't know how you could watch that and like not be moved or educated by it. It's really really well done and so well edited. Yeah, right. I also uh, rewatched um, before. Uh, certain tweets were put out there. Uh, Boys in the Hood, <laughs> starring Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, uh, which, for the record, uh, that is a movie that I have not seen in a very, very long time, going back to my college days, and I was very struck uh, by how moved I was by it still, and uh, the, just the level of humanity in that movie. I think people sometimes look at that movie and maybe... Uh, cast a you know poor perception upon it without maybe even having uh, seen it but th- there's a lot of raw real emotional hard-hitting moments in that movie and it's really really well written so um despite uh ice cubes uh behavior lately i still recommend checking it out oh, yeah, it's a great movie <laughs> i also rewatched uh malcolm x uh which once again had not seen in a very very long time and um i have to say it is a crime, a shame, that in an age where three-hour-long epics were all the rage for the Academy, that this movie did not receive at least ten Oscar nominations. I, I, like, it, it just... Mm-hmm. You give Gandhi eight Oscars. Eight? Eight wins! And you can't even give Malcolm X eight nominations. I, I just don't... Uh, I do understand it for its time. I get it. But looking back on it, that movie deserved so much more and it's not like a movie that flew under the radar like it was a box office sensation yeah i think it made like 48 million dollars or something like that during its time which you know back then was a nice chunk of change for a three hour plus movie yeah and uh mr hoo-ha won over mr washington so yeah Ugh. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, their priorities were not in the right place. <laughs> and then uh like everyone else said i watched defy bloods and our podcast review um, pretty much says everything I want to say about that movie. So highly recommend you go and check that out if you have uh, seen the movie and you want to hear our thoughts on it. Okay, so moving on from that, I think we could segue actually here into the polls really quick because last week's poll, uh, we asked everyone, which is their favorite Spike Lee film? Got a lot of different answers for this one uh, because we allowed people to choose up to three. So while I take a look at the results here, uh, why don't we go around? Michael, uh, what is your favorite Spike Lee film? I love a lot of them, but easily do the right thing. Okay, cool. Josh Parham. Yeah, number one to me has to be do the right thing. But I would also mention that Malcolm X is pretty powerful as well. Okay. Dan Bear. I... My favorite or his best? They're different. I know. I know. We're going with favorite here. Okay. If we're going with favorite, then I have rewatched Chirac more times than I should probably admit. (laughs) Okay. All righty. Nicole. 
I will admit that I have a lot of catching up to do with Spike Lee's uh, filmography. But of the ones that I have seen, I'd probably say Black Klansman's my favorite. All right, Kaya? Definitely do the right thing for me. And I am definitely a do the right thing uh, fan. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, But, you know, I think he's a filmmaker, um, as we talked about with Defy Bloods, where his movies just hold up on uh, multiple viewings uh, because of how messy and ambiguous uh, they can be sometimes. And uh, definitely worth revisiting. And I'm glad a lot of people are indeed catching up with uh, a lot of his films during this time. So let's do the countdown here. Let's see what the uh, readership voted on for their favorite Spike Lee films. Hi guys, I'm Dean. And I'm Daniel. And we're from the Movie Journey Podcast. Where we break down every movie from the IMDb Top 250 list, giving our own thoughts and reviews and any general discussion along the way. We're also home of the Pod V Pod, where we battle other podcasters in various movie games and drafts. We also do reviews of new releases, film tournaments, top five lists, and talk about everything else we've watched as well. We used to be the IMDb Journey Podcast, but since then, we've grown and matured with age. Yeah, if you don't believe us, why don't you listen to some more Genuine Testimonies? Oh, hey guys, I uh, I used to like the IMDb Journey podcast, but since then I've found something even better. It's the Movie Journey podcast. Oi, bro, I know I said the IMDb Journey podcast was a good show, but the Movie Journey podcast is so much better. Absolutely for sure, yeah. You know, I used to think that nothing could be funnier than IMDb Journey, but I've now found my joy in Movie Journey podcast. The IMDb Journey podcast is nothing compared to the Movie Journey podcast. Absolutely love this podcast. (laughs) Amazing testimonies once again. Absolutely legit and real. Of course. And if you still don't believe those testimonies, go ahead and check out the show for yourself by searching for the Movie Journey podcast. You can find us on all your favourite platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Podbean. So come along and join our journey. Oh, Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan. I know it's not very popular, but it deserves <laughs> to be reseen and reevaluated. It's number 11. I'm sorry. That didn't make the top 10. Just shows to me that people need to watch that movie again. And it, especially now. The film is called Chirac and it missed the top 10 by two votes. Mm, it's an interesting movie. Yeah. Number 10 is Jungle Fever. It's a very good movie. Number nine is Bamboozled. Mm. <laughs> Which is having a resurgence on its 20th anniversary. It just got put out by Criterion. Yep. Number eight, Summer of Sam. Okay. I like that one a lot. Same here. Number seven, She's Gotta Have It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, number six, He Got Game. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, I, I, I like that that one placed that high. It's an underrated Denzel Washington performance. Yeah. Number five, Inside Man. Hmm. Probably his most mainstream movie. Yeah, when people say like every, uh, you know, like because I've heard so many people say this over the last like week or so, like, oh, what Spike Lee film is it messy? Well, the answer is Inside Man. <laughs> Until you get to the very end of the movie, though. That is as tight of a movie as he's ever made. <laughs> Uh, number four, uh, the dude bros of film Twitter came out 25th hour. No, that is a great movie. That I, like I, I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm more so saying it in a joking matter. I, I think 25th hour is pretty freaking awesome. I agree. It's actually like in terms of post 9-11 movies. I think <laughs> yeah. the one. 
Yeah. Number three, Malcolm X. Outstanding. Number two, Black Klansman. And number one, no surprise, do the right thing. What was the margin there that I won by? The margin was, oh, Michael, you're making me do math. Um, 74 vote difference. Well, yeah. Classic. So, Spike Lee, great filmmaker, deserves to be celebrated much more often. Highly recommend checking out his work. This week's poll, going to tie into a little bit of news this week, which we're going to dive into in much more detail here in a second. But this week, we're asking everyone, which of these Best Picture contenders would you like to have seen receive a Best Picture nomination? And now I ask this question because ever since 2011, we have had a sliding scale for Best Picture. Anywhere between five and ten nominees. We have never had anything else other than eight or nine. And as of Friday... The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences have announced that they will be reverting back to a straight 10 Best Picture nominees, starting with the 94th Academy Awards. Now, before we dive into that news really quick, I do want to ask some people, uh, what are some movies that you feel were, were close to a Best Picture nomination that did miss out because of the sliding scale, most likely? Uh, what would you have liked to have seen receive that nomination? Carol, Carol, and Carol. Yeah, I feel like we should just get that one out of the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to go with If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, that's my I love one. that one, too. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, for me, it's definitely Foxcatcher. Which is probably the one that stings the most, actually, when you think yes, about the does. fact that it has that director nomination. <laughs> and it was eight nominees. It wasn't even nine that year. Yeah. Yeah, it it's the one that is the most bizarre to me and was like clearly very, very close. And everything would be just so much better in my mind if it got in. Yeah. Um, I want to give a shout out to I, I honestly believe that this would have happened. Truthfully, um, tell me if you agree or disagree. I think Inside Out would have made it. Uh, yeah, I think Absolutely. it may have. But it de- well, it depends yeah. on for voting. Like, would they be using the same model as 2009 and 2010, or would it be this different system that they've been using since 2011 that locks out those animated movies in a way? Yeah. Like, if it had been the 2010 model, I think it definitely would have gotten in. 2015 is weird, though. There's, like, many contenders for that last spot, because you've got that, you've got uh, Carol, you've got Ex Machina. Like, I... I really don't know what what movie would have gotten in in those final spots that year. I mean, people also talk about um, 2018 with Can You Ever Forgive Me, Cold War, Beale Street, First Man. You know, there's a lot to go around there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wish Skyfall would have gotten in in 2012. Uh, you know what? I think Skyfall might have made it. <laughs> I actually I do. It's number 10. Absolutely. Yeah. You got like six nominations or something like that. Five yep. or six. One, two. I still wish I, Tanya had gotten in. You know, that's another really <laughs> tough one that I go back and forth between all the time. If it was I, Tanya or if it was Mudbound. I, it was I, Tanya. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, Tanya, but it was number 10. Yeah. yeah definitely. They loved it. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis only got two nominations, which I think is criminal. But I didn't yeah. want to be the one to put it out there. <laughs> Oh, it didn't get the song nomination for Please, Mr. Kennedy. That's nope. right. Yeah. Nope. After it didn't get production design, it didn't get costume, it missed a whole boatload of deserved nominations, including Best Picture. Yeah. 
You know, I know everyone always says Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was the ninth nom- uh, the 10th nominee for 2011, but I often ask myself on a daily basis, how close was Bridesmaids really? Bridesmaids was 11. <laughs> I, I really hope so. <laughs> yeah, that was right up there. And that's one of my choices. I wish that had gotten in. I like it better than Dragon Tattoo. I really Me wish too. that did it. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom only got the screenplay nomination, but did pretty well with the guilds. So I yep. think that was pretty close there. We also have to ask ourselves, too, is it possible that if they had been doing a straight 10 all this time, is it possible that there could have been at least one movie that would have gotten a Best Picture nomination and nothing else? No, I don't think so. There's always that like song nomination for something or you know something really low below the line. Well, but I look at like certain movies that, for example, got like um, like PGA nominations but didn't translate into any Oscar nominations like Crazy Rich Asians or um, Deadpool or Wonder Woman, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's I very think much a CGA so. thing. They were probably in the mix, like in the top 15, but I don't think any of them were 9 or 10. Well, maybe when they revert back to 10, maybe we'll see it happen at some point. Yeah, I, I think when they're going for next year, it's not going to apply to this year's Oscars. If they want to try animated features, you know, we hear really good things about Pixar's Soul, which is supposed to open this November. It was supposed to play at Cannes. Maybe they just push that to next year now and get it in for that uh, lineup of 10. Or maybe Soul makes it this year anyway. Lack of competition could help. Maybe, you know, it's it's an uphill climb under these circumstances. Sure. We'll see. Nothing's impossible. Well, head on over to the polls page in nextbestpicture.com. Cast a vote over there. Let us know which uh, Best Picture hopeful you wish could have gotten that Best Picture nomination if there were 10 nominees. Hey, everyone. I'm Jason. And I'm Lee. And we are the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. We look to take a magnifying glass to the films you love with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh, new releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. Check out the ASC Podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, or keep in the loop on Twitter by following me at film underscore faculty or Lee at Big Pick Reviews. That counts as a promo, right? Right. All right, cool. All right, well, I guess we'll cut here. See you later. (laughs) Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. And now, let's dive into the news here. So, Hollywood Reporter, earth-shattering news uh, on Friday. Major announcements regarding diversity and inclusion uh, from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which started with Oscar So White uh, back in 2014. And um, they're making good on their word, obviously aided, in fact, by what's going on today in the world. Uh, I mean, like, come on, no doubt that that lit a fire under their ass to make this announcement. Um, But regardless of which, moving back to 10 nominees, a straight 10 Personally, my opinion, I believe, is going to help. It's not proven that it's going to fix the diversity problem in the Best Picture lineup. But I think the odds and the chances are greatly increased because to the points that we've just made, that's how you get a Carol as a Best Picture nominee. That's how you get a Beale Street could talk as a Best Picture nominee. And hopefully, maybe not, but hopefully you have a little less outrage because there's just more of a wider spread of movies. Opening up the field to more contenders is going to allow you to have a more diverse lineup. And that has always been the frustrating thing with the sliding scale is that it is this weird hybrid that the Academy tried to compromise with, but just never really resulted in, in, 
I, we just would always get frustrated by their selections with it. And I think just having a straight 10 certainly is a step in the right direction to try to alleviate some of these um, exclusions that they've been having lately. And let's like keep something in mind here. The reason why they went to this sliding scale, this is the infuriating part to me so much. Yeah. They were getting way <laughs> too many complaints from voting members that they couldn't think of 10 nominees to list on their ballots. They couldn't think to list 10. How, like, how is that even possible? <laughs> well, which, to be fair, looking at some of the films that got nominated in the years that it was 10, you can kind of see why. <laughs> the blind side. <laughs> Maybe. But I would make an argument that The Blind Side is no different than, say, Green Book in 2018 in terms of the type of movie and the type of voter that would vote for it. Well, and also you had The Blind Side that year, but you also had District 9. Right. Which probably would have gotten in even on the sliding scale, considering it mm. also cut in for like editing and some weird things like that. I, I don't know about that necessarily. Yeah. And The Blind Side is very much an Academy movie, even if we were in this current system. Uh, it I is still gotten not. In there. It is not. It that is so was an Academy a, movie. An, Love that was an, a middle brow even for the Academy. The only It got Sandra Bullock and Best Picture. Yeah, yeah. well, it's like The Post. The, that is Sandra a, Bullock won that, Best Actress. But it's nowhere near as good as The Post and nowhere near the level of prestige. I'm not talking about quality. I'm just talking about what they like and this Academy and how these old school members operate. It's very much in their wheelhouse. And, and that's the thing I, I want to just say about the voting system, too. So the current voting system for the sliding scale is instead of listing a straight 10 uh, like they were doing for 2009 and 2010, they're listing one through five. So... If you have a type of voter who does go for those types of films, that's how you get then these best picture lineups that do lack in diversity and inclusion and some more inspired choices. And instead, what we get is we get more predictable choices, Oscar bait choices, etc. And that that that's that's really unfair to uh, a, a large range of movies, because think about this, too, uh, for many, many decades there weren't as many movies being made as there are today being released theatrically. There also wasn't as many ways to watch those movies as there are today with different streaming platforms, um, more accessibility uh, to movie theaters pre-COVID-19, by the way. Um, you know, and so as a result of that, you, you see uh, just more movies being seen by audiences um, and also, you know, the Internet, film Twitter has aided in that conversation greatly, where it's no longer just the major trades anymore reporting on what the uh, five Best Picture nominees are going to possibly be this year. It's a wider, broader conversation with many different voices. So you need 10. You need 10 to represent uh, a year in film. Well, which they haven't announced yet how the voting is going to work. So we don't know for sure that this will actually work. But for me, the, the big piece of news in this is that they're going to have this digital academy screening room yes. starting earlier in the year so that – Quarterly. Yeah, quarterly. So that people can actually watch movies that were released in the beginning of the year so that they can see more movies, hopefully, and thus – 
vote for more movies. That to me is more how you get a diverse lineup, a lineup of smaller indie movies and more big budget movies. Like that to me is even more exciting than going back to a straight 10. I said before that going back to a straight 10 increases the chances of a more diverse and inspired lineup of best picture nominees. What you just said there, Dan, I think solidifies it personally speaking, Mm -hmm. because how often have we heard uh, voters say, I've got this pile of screeners, i got to cram them all like in a two-week, one-week period, whatever it is before voting happens at the end of the year. Instead, they could spread it out throughout the year, watch things here and there, yeah. uh, instead of waiting all the way to the very end and scrambling. It's, it's, a, it's such a better system. Absolutely. I mean, that's how we get maybe, listen, it, it may not be a Best Picture nomination, but maybe then you see nominations for things like The Farewell, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Uncut Gems. Maybe. Dolomite is my name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I can, I can name so many that just got zero nominations yeah. because they just were not as widely seen as... Hereditary. Oh, God, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> because people prioritize the major ones. They prioritize the 1917s, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywoods, you know? And, yeah, I mean, think about this for a second. We're coming up on the halfway point of the year by the end of this month, right? So imagine if there was like a screening room right now for potential Oscar contenders at this point in the year. Like, ask yourself what movies for this year um, under this new system, like would Academy members be watching right now? The one that's on Netflix. What, Defy Bloods? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, they'd be watching Emma, probably. Maybe. That was my first Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe The Way Back for Ben Affleck's performance. I don't know. Yep. Maybe Maybe, The Invisible Man. Yeah, surely. Surely. Yeah. Maybe The Invisible Man. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It would help Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But this is the idea, though, because if you don't see these movies and you hold off until the end of the year and you're going to prioritize the major Oscar contenders and then these other films just they don't get seen, period. So, yeah, Dan, I agree with you that this is this is the thing. Like, they should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you could really only do this in an age where everything has been going so much in the digital direction. Like, that has – doing that is what has been able to allow this to happen. So it's really this technology that has provided this space for movies to get onto this kind of platform because otherwise it would have been just like sending out screeners in April and – that just wouldn't have really been the way to go. But it's so interesting that where technology is now that it allows for these opportunities for these films and these filmmakers out there. And then the other thing, too, uh, this was like a smaller uh, thing, but from a system, uh, systemic like change within the Academy itself, uh, they looked at their own rules for board member term limits, which under the new revisions that they put in place, I hope will hope, you know, will keep things like fresh and we'll be able to get fresh new perspectives from people that are making decisions for the academy and the academy's best interests and also catering towards uh, some more of the outcries from the general public from fans such as us that want to see the oscars do better um instead of having the same group of people that are always making these decisions and no progress is being made or progress is being made too slowly so all of these decisions that were made over the last couple of days man oh man do i wholeheartedly approve i loved all of this yeah, I think it's it's all great steps in the right direction, and I'm excited to see. I mean, I'm sad that we have to wait another whole year to see how it plays out, but 
it feels like they're they're really you know doing some actual changes that should help some of the issues that they've had. The one thing that I'm a little confused on is I am a little confused about the um, the requirements for eligibility based on uh, diversity. They haven't released these guidelines. Yet. I I know that BAFTA has a similar system in place right now for two of their awards categories for the outstanding British uh, film and outstanding debut British film. I, I, I don't know exactly. I know that they're in talks with BAFTA to try and implement something similar. I, I mean, it's very vague right now. They say that they're going to do it, but I don't know what that looks like. Especially now in this preliminary stage where there's very little information. Yeah, that's the thing. There just isn't any information that they provided with that. So, you know, it's one of those things where it sounds good, but we don't have the specifics of what is actually going to be implemented. By the way, just a quick, quick shout out to uh, some people elected to the Board of Governors, some for the first time, some for re-election. Yeah. Uh, Ava DuVernay is now a member of the director's branch. Or not a member, yes. I'm sorry. She's a, she's uh, a on governor. The the director's branch. Yes, yeah. a governor. Uh, she's a governor. And our friend Whoopi Goldberg was re-elected uh, to serve as a governor for the actor's branch. Yep. So some good people there. Yep. And there were... Uh, Many others as well um, that, you know, in other branches, of course, uh, they shook things up uh, over the last couple of days. So major changes all around. Um, Unfortunately, once again, not taking place this year. We have to wait until the following year to see uh, how this all pans out. So that's that was the one thing that I was like, oh, man, (laughs) you know, I was really, really hoping that it would be for this year. But. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, we'll see what happens. This year is still very much a question mark in many, many ways. Really, we got to get through the year just in general first. <laughs> and speaking yeah. of which, uh, we had some day changes uh, on Warner Brothers uh, front. Wonder Woman's been pushed off to October 2nd now. Um, and also, <laughs> oh, man, Tenet has been moved from <laughs> like to July 31st. I laugh because... It's so, so clear to me that, like, they want people to badly, badly, badly see Inception 2. I mean, Tenet. Um, (laughs) And they're so worried about people not showing up to it because of COVID-19. And I think that a lot of what's happening right now in the news about theaters, like, slowly reopening across the country. And I mean slowly. Um, And there are some dates that have been announced uh, as well for, like, uh, California. I mean, good luck, Mulan. That's all I can say. (laughs) Uh, I saw the funniest tweet from Josh Molina, who was on the West Wing and Scandal. It said, uh, Christopher Nolan's tenant has been delayed two weeks, and he wrote, it will somehow be released two weeks earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So now Mulan, July 24th. Uh, That is our first real big movie opening now, I guess. Yeah, there are a few things before that, but that's the first like major, major, major release. Right. And it's both around the corner and a lifetime from now. So much can change today. <laughs> so, you know, the way things stand right now, you're talking a little over a month. I wouldn't feel comfortable, but who knows where we're going to be by then. I'm going. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> You say that like you're not excited or looking forward. No, because how can I be excited? But at the same time, it's like I feel... I feel like this weird sense of obligation. I don't know. Like, I feel like I have to do it. I mean, I think we all feel we all love movies and we all love going to see them in movie theaters. And I 
when the theaters here in New York finally do open, I will definitely, no question, want to be there. But if it doesn't look safe, I mean, we've seen state after state that has opened up post increased numbers of COVID cases and, um, you know, hospitalizations, et cetera. So if that keeps going and I'm not going to show up to that theater for anything, you couldn't, well, maybe you could pay me, <laughs> but it would have to be a lot. Um, Speaking of which, to a certain degree, maybe you'll get a private screening room, Dan, because a little bit of uh, personal news here. I want to congratulate Dan Baer on getting accepted into Gallica this week. Congratulations, buddy. Thank you. It's really, really exciting. I'm so proud. Screening rooms, my friend. You'll never want to watch a movie any other way ever again. (laughs) (laughs) You may not be able to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, man. I, I actually take that back a little bit. Sometimes when I see stuff in a screening room, it doesn't hold up to seeing like a full theater of people. But it, you know, it's got its own perks. And a whole theater of not critics. Yeah. <laughs> in any event, though, congratulations, buddy. Seriously, well earned. Thank you. All right. So uh, a movie that is not going to be coming out to theaters, but will be releasing uh, actually this upcoming weekend on digital streaming platforms is... A new film from David Coep. You guys might remember uh, him from, you know, like he's written a ton of things over the years. Uh, but uh, I think the movie that like most people like go to as far as like his work uh, is Secret Window with uh, Johnny Depp uh, is probably the one that I think uh, comes to mind the most. But, you know, he's written Jurassic Park. He's uh, written Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible. Uh, his last directed film, Mordecai. <laughs> The, le- oh the less said, the better. <laughs> Completely forgot about that oh movie. <laughs> it's been five long years since his last directorial effort. Uh, so he's back with a Blumhouse film here called You Should Have Left. Let's take a look at the trailer for this one. Come away with me. If I don't get out of here for a while, I think I'm going to go nuts. I love you so much. It's just the three of us. Just you and me and Ella. Daddy, because you're old, you'll die before mommy, right? Hey, not that old. Listen. Quiet. Hey. There was a shadow on the wall. I know it's fun, but it's time to sleep. Good night, honey. You got enough switches? Does this wall look right to you? What are you doing? 26 feet. 21. This room is five feet longer on the inside than it is on the outside. How does that work? It doesn't. Anything happened yet? You chose this place, not me. You sent me the link. I absolutely did not. You sent it to me. Somebody wrote in my journal. Do you like it here? No. Do you? I hate it. 
There was a different house before that one. What sort of house? Why do people hate Daddy so much? The judge and the jury all found him innocent, but some people didn't believe him. The house chose me. He must be guilty of something. People have always stayed in that house. Ella! Some don't leave. Wake up! It's a dream! The right ones usually find the place. Or maybe it's the other way around. The place finds them. I miss the whimsy of Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> I, I at least appreciate that they seem to specifically point out the fact that the the age gap between Kevin Bacon and the safe I agree because I was super worried about it at first, but then when I heard them actually pointed out in the trailer, I was like, oh, maybe this is tying into some sort of a story point and there is a reason behind it. And maybe it's touching upon a greater theme potentially then. I hope. <laughs> yeah. Just hoping with the with the premise of this movie, anything could happen. So, you know. I mean, it's very clear, too, that they're trying to capitalize on that uh, Invisible Man uh, marketing vibe. Yeah, I it's weird because I don't this it feels like almost trailer by committee. Like it seems like, yes, this this is just how horror trailers are done now. Um, Mm -hmm. And but the premise is I There, there are parts of it that I really like. Um, the idea of a house that is larger on the inside than it is on the outside is one that I, I've seen pop up in books a number of times, and is can be you can do really fascinating things with it. So I'm interested to see what this one does. Yeah, <laughs> it it has some like very interesting visuals going on, and the only thing is just Blumhouse is. <laughs> very inconsistent when it comes to quality. Like sometimes they can hand out the park, and other times it's like, mm-hmm. why are you not in a gas station bin? Like it's... as as <laughs> the writer director of this movie, frankly. So. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, the trailer it, it doesn't look like it is being that daring in terms of the marketing, but it does look rather intriguing. And if it's for a decent price on on demand, you know, it might be something worth checking out. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's been four years since we've seen uh, Kevin Bacon on screen. So that long. Yeah. Uh, Patriot's Day was the last time uh, to 2016. I feel like I'm always seeing maybe it's just like TV or it's TV. Yeah, it's TV. Okay. He's like, there's a reason there's a game. Um, for him. So it's nice to see him in a movie again. And Amanda Seyfried, I I don't know what <sighs> she's never really excited me as an actress. Like, I've never really seen her in anything other than maybe Les Miserables, where I, like, kind of stood up and took notice. But, hey, maybe that'll change later this year with Mank. I don't know. Even First Reformed, she felt like she was playing, like, second fiddle, like, most of the time, too, Ethan Hawke, you know, and didn't really stand out as much as I wanted yeah. her to. Well, she is Karen Smith, and I will not have any disrespect for the one and only Karen Smith. <laughs> fair enough. That's that's totally fair. I mean, I guess Mamma Mia was a nice showcase, too. I suppose she is very underrated in Mamma Mia. I think like she holds those movies together. Yeah. I really like her in Mamma Mia. Here we go again, even more than the first one. Um, But I agree. I've never really liked her in like a, any sort of dramatic context. So I don't, I don't know how I feel about, about her in this. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking through her roles and forgot that she played a character in Ted Two named Sam L. Jackson. (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember that from the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. Anyway, that's coming out this weekend, June 18th. It'll be here before you know it, and we'll have some uh, more word on that for you guys. All right, let's head on over now to fan questions. Let's see what the MVP film community has for us this week. Let's take a look. Hey, everyone. I'm Aaron. And I'm Patrick. And together we host the Feelin' Film Podcast, a show that focuses more on the emotional takeaway from a movie experience rather than its technical merit. Yes, sir. Talking about what we love about film and focusing less on the critical side of things makes for a very entertaining and enjoyable discussion. New episodes drop every Monday morning, and you can catch them on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting networks. You can also find out more about the show at feelinfilm.com. In the meantime, as we say on the show, stay positive and keep feeling film. Richard Houlihan. What are your thoughts on uh, movies and shows being removed from streaming services uh, that have racial stereotypes? I'm a cinephile who loves watching movies from the past, and I still have not seen Gone with the Wind. I Just do it. <laughs> Sit down for the yeah. three and a half hours and watch it. I, <laughs> I think that uh, – here's my, here's my feeling on this. Um, I think that for historical purposes, if you really, 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 really need to like watch – something like Gone with the Wind or even Birth of a Nation, I do think that there should be a disclaimer before the movie starts. And I think that you really should ask yourself personally why and you know why you really feel like you need to see um especially something like Birth of a Nation. I mean, really? You know, it's like I I don't know about you guys, but when I saw that like I didn't see the movie in full. They just showed clips of it um, to demonstrate yeah. uh, filmmaking techniques yeah. um, when I was in film school. And I, that was all I needed. That's all you need, you know? I've watched Birth of a Nation twice, um, both in the context of history classes, mm -hmm. uh, in which we were talking about um, racism uh, in the era that the film was made and using the film to look at sort of what kind of stereotypes were perpetuated and what the collective memory, so to speak, of the Civil War was in the South. So, like, as someone who studied history in school, I think that it's important that we are able to study these films as sort of historic artifacts of the time that they were made. Um, but I totally agree, Matt. I think the appropriate thing is to have them available to watch, but always with a disclaimer. And I also think that, you know, if you choose not to watch those films, whether that's something obvious like Birth of a Nation or something like Gone with the Wind that, you know, a lot of people still hold up as, as a masterpiece of filmmaking, I don't think anyone should ever shame someone for not wanting to watch that because I think there's very good reasons not to. And but nor the should they time, shame them for wanting to watch it either. Precisely. I think it's also important that we're able to watch those and study them as long as we have the context that we need to understand what we're seeing. Exactly. Other, it's, it's very dangerous and can work um, the opposite of the way people want it to when you just pretend that something doesn't exist and don't make it available to watch. I mean, like, look how many people are, like, clamoring, have been clamoring to see Song of the South for years because Disney just hides it away and doesn't talk about it. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with the Song of the South comparison as a movie that has been hidden and it makes people just want to see it even more because it kind of builds up then this... Uh, anticipation of like well what's the big deal what's it all about you know yeah the curiosity factor 
I think we're living in an age right now, uh, and and I say an age, I mean like like truthfully, we're living in a time where it is so important for us to confront um, our history with racism to better understand it, so that this way we can dismantle it. I I think that's the ultimate goal is we need to be calling out um, more um, overt racist tendencies when we see them happen in our everyday lives. And we also need to understand from a historical context um, what racism was at the time and how it was depicted um, on 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 screen. And hopefully, you know, you can learn from mistakes of the past, mistakes of the present and just continue to get better. But to hide it altogether completely, I think that does the exact opposite then from an educational standpoint of trying to get better. Yeah. And then also from a historical perspective, just speaking about Gone with the Wind, Look, I totally believe in putting a disclaimer up there, having like some sort of intro on HBO Max where the movie was removed from this week. And it'll be put back with the disclaimer, which is the right thing to do. Looking at that movie on its own, though, it's the first film to win for uh, it features the first performance by an African-American performer, Hattie McDaniel, to win an Oscar. Yeah. And that's history right there. You have her. You have a Best Picture winner. You have legendary performance of Vivian Lee. There are reasons to want to see this. You just need to know the context of it before you jump into it. Uh, it's particularly annoying for me because like, <sighs> I feel like a disclaimer that a film represents certain views of certain people at the time it was made is like, should not need to be put before any movie because that's the, that's true of any movie that we see made at any point in history. But the events of recent months have proven yet again that apparently it we do need to put those disclaimers in front of things because just people people are stupid. I think there's an argument to be made there, Dan. I don't disagree with you on that necessarily. Um, I don't know which way I lean necessarily yet, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Uh, Kaya, what, what do you think? I don't really know how I feel. Um, I feel like some films are important, so they're worth watching no matter the context or no matter how people were depicted in them. But yeah, I also feel like people have the right not to want to watch them. Absolutely. And like shaming, shaming someone either way is not, it's not going to get anybody anywhere. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from that CM guy, 1988, in honor of the disastrous reception for Kenneth Branagh's Artemis Fowl. <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest abomination that your favorite director ever gave to you? Mine is Artemis Fowl. Kenneth has yet to disappoint me, so my next one is Kenneth Branagh. Greta only made two movies. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, she hasn't had time to disappoint me yet, so my next, like, you know... The other person I would go to is Kenneth Brada, and he, well, <laughs> you'll be able to read my review. Uh, I remember when I was younger, I was a huge Tim Burton fan. Like, he was my favorite director. And walking out of Dark Shadows was the most soul-crushing <laughs> experience that I think I've ever had after watching a movie. It is by far, I think, his worst film, and it, it's just so depressing how terrible that movie is oh. i'm having difficulty right now thinking of like from my favorite directors like a movie that just crushed me uh hmm 
or like I walked out thinking, how in God's name did they make that? I wouldn't say that Tim Burton is one of my favorite filmmakers, but I do really like his work. And I, oh, I, I, I wish that I could erase Alice in Wonderland from my vision. Oh yeah. It is such an abomination of, of like everything that he is so endemic and interesting and quirky about his vision to, into something that is loud and garish and ugly and just no yeah it was the beginning of the end for him alice in wonderland you know what i got one and maybe you guys will disagree with me on this uh actually no you probably will disagree with me on this uh but downsizing for alexander payne came to mind that's not a disaster it's just not a great movie it's I don't know. Alexander Pan has been a long, slow, steady decline for me. Oh, my goodness. Really <laughs> or um, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ang Lee. Again, that's an interesting movie. It's not a failure failure. Like, there's stuff happening there that doesn't make me want to write it off. What? All right. What about The Good German by Steven Soderbergh? Again. <laughs> Michael. There's a vision I'm not there. sure you're understanding just how bad Artemis Fowl is. <laughs> <laughs> like I was gonna say hook from Steven Spielberg, but hook Nah, there's a certain level of charm to oh, that hook still. Is not good. Yeah, hook like the, I, I was thinking of like the bad movies from directors I like, and there are elements of hook that I like, whereas Artemis Fowl I haven't even seen. I've only seen the trailer and I know what movie it is by that trailer. All just, right, you know what? I got one. I one just came to mind. I got it. I got it. A good year from Ridley Scott. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> fine for what it is. Michael, I need to hear your answer. Fine for what it is. I mean, I mean if we were going to have anybody defend that movie, it was going to be Michael Schwartz. All right, fine. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep going with this. Jack from Francis Ford Coppola. You haven't seen it. I can't speak to it. All right, Lions for Lambs from Robert Redford. Oh, I, like yeah. I kind of like that movie, too. <laughs> it's not good. I mean, it's not great, but I, I kind of like it. All right, fine. Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal yeah, Skull from Steven Spielberg. I like Kingdom of the Crystal one Skull. Star. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually like Crystal different Skull, way too. <laughs> I, I can't with you guys right now. Um, <laughs> oh, I got one. I got one. I got one. Tom Tick was the international... <laughs> and none of you even know what it is. Oh, I know what it is. I, I, I just haven't thought about that movie probably since 2009. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I remember seeing the trailer. I don't have oh, anything else. God. I know what my answer is. Okay, I got it. I got it. Of course. And again, this is uh, in that same vein of Hook, but uh, Joe Wright and Pan. You know what? That's actually a good choice. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. Pan is awful. Has, <laughs> has a Pan has Lily James as Tiger Lily. Not Lily James, sorry. Uh, Lily James Rudy was in... Mara, this, please. Yeah, Mara. Why did I say Lily James? She was probably in something else that was bad, even though we loved her in general. <laughs> uh, Terry Plucknet asks, um, what are the worst performances in films you consider to be masterpieces? Mm. <laughs> oh, God. Um, pick any Robert Bresson movie. There's something in there. <laughs> I get that that was purposeful on his part, but I it it 
if anything comes close to ruining those movies for me, it's those wooden performances. This might be controversial, but I would consider Carol to be a masterpiece, and yet I hate Rooney Mara's performance. Yes! God damn it. God damn it. Yes! Matt, take them off the podcast. <laughs> I can't. Thank you, I can't. I, I can't just for that. I need more. I need more evidence of such a disdain. Dan and I could talk about this all day long. All like, day. I'm not sure you want to get into No, we talked about it on the podcast review last year. So, like, I get it. Yep. <laughs> um, here's mine. And this is this is definitely maybe controversial. Um, Oscar winner Estelle Parsons from Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to disagree. Thank you, Josh. I love Estelle Parsons. <laughs> not is in that, that movie, though. Like, it's not a good performance. My answer comes from my favorite film of the past decade, and it's not an actively bad performance, but you just stick out like a sore thumb in it, and that's Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Lincoln. I don't think he's awful in it. Uh, all right. He's, he's a weak link. Of it, so. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Pyle asks, what's the first Best Picture win that you remember? Like, remember seeing on TV or just... Like, yeah, we'll go, we'll go with head. that. Remember seeing on TV. Million Dollar Baby. I think that the first one I actually remember seeing on TV was Chicago, but I also watched it when Best Picture when I didn't know anything about the Oscars, so I didn't realize I was watching Chicago when Best Picture. I only realized that later on, thinking back to that moment when I was watching it on TV. So this is weird, because I know the first one that I remember is The Silence of the Lambs, because I only cared because Beauty and the Beast was nominated that year. But the first one that I remember watching, like actually seeing, probably Schindler's List. Wow. It's going back It's somewhere around that Schindler's List, Forrest Gump, Braveheart period, I think, that, that early to mid-90s period. I can't tell you guys when was the first time I watched the Oscars yeah. because um, my parents would watch it. And I think that because I had like – no context as to what was going on. I probably just stumbled in my parents' basement and like saw it on the TV. So yeah, that's how I w- I saw Chicago win Best Picture essentially. Yeah, I, I can't pinpoint exactly which was the first, but I remember the first one I watched actively from beginning to end was of uh, 2003 uh, Lord of the Rings: Return of the King sweep <laughs> because I was very heavily invested in that movie winning. <laughs> I remember the first one that I watched. All the way through was uh, uh, 98 Shakespeare in Love year because wow. I was all about Shakespeare in Love and needed to see if it won. And also, too, what a night in terms of like just you have Whoopi Goldberg coming out dressed yeah. in the costume. Oh, you got Roberto God. Benigni climbing on chairs like great fucking ceremony. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Kaya, what about you? I think it was Lord of the Rings for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was Lord of the Rings for a lot of people. They got great ratings that year. Yeah. All right. Uh, this one comes from Film and Sports 21. Daniel Brilliant, a friend of the podcast. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Daniel. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And so he's uh, asking, uh, what is your favorite film involving a birthday celebration or party? Um, you have to exclude Parasite. It's too easy. <laughs> that wasn't a fun I birthday. Actually- I actually think that mine might be, and this is a silly answer, I know, but Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, no, that's sweet. Yeah, Yeah. it's just a really touching, sweet scene. And 
I, I really, I also just have a soft spot for that movie in general. It just makes me happy every time I see it. And sad at the same time, which is what I like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my obvious answer is uh, Bilbo Baggins' birthday in Lord of the Rings and Fellowship of the Ring. But I digress. Um, mm-hmm. Giant firework can- uh, fireworks of dragons aside. Um, I'm going to go with uh, an interesting one here that's worked into the uh, storyline of the movie itself. Uh, Toy Story. Andy's birthday present for, for Buzz. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mine is like a blink if you miss it moment, and it's in the very beginning of Tootsie when it's Michael Dorsey's birthday, and a woman brings out a cake, and it's like singing happy birthday so loud that she's blowing out the candles. Yeah. On the cake. <laughs> I think I would, uh, the one that comes to my mind is the uh, children's birthday in The Birds. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> What about um, Don Corleone's uh, birthday at the end of Godfather Part 2 and it's an excuse to have all the cast members back in that scene again? Well, almost all the cast members. Yeah. Right, right. But still, like, great way to end that movie. Yeah. And just kind of bookend things a bit. Uh, oh, and I got to pull Michael Schwartz and say Norman's birthday in Auden Golden Pond. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's Norman really... Thayer's 80th birthday. Okay, so... <laughs> I want to say working girl. <laughs> I mean, a hostess cupcake on the Staten Island Ferry with three little candles in it given to me by Joan Cusack is how I would want to spend my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> As Carly Simon's Let the River Run plays in the background. <laughs> yes. The only one I can think of right now is um, Knives Out and the shots of each of the children uh, giving oh, him yeah. the cake in different ways because that's how they see themselves. I love that. Oh, that's, yeah. I can't believe none of us said Knives Out. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. I guess Who's actually that other one from last year would be Little Women Ends with a birthday celebration from Army. Knew so. that yes. was coming. <laughs> Who's going to say Sleeping Beauty? Uh, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you got to relax on that birthday. I think this is an obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway. Scott Kernan asks, um, because we're going back to 10 uh, Best Picture nominees, which nomination process do you prefer? Ranked voting like 2009, 2010 or plurality plurality vote like 2011 to 2020? Ranked. Ranked. Easily. Yeah. 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 Easily. Yeah. I, but voting for the winner, because you have to admit we've gotten more interesting winners under plurality vote. No, 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 no. I think he's meaning the nomination process, the nomination not the process? yeah, okay. not the winner. Yeah, definitely 2009, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where this question came from, but I'll ask it anyway. Titus Banks asks us, what's everyone's personal favorite Billy Wilder film? Some Like It Hot. Sunset the Boulevard. Apartment by a margin. It's right in front of Some Like It Hot. Uh, I'm also a fan of The Apartment, and it's right above Sunset Boulevard for me. It's, I mean, God, those three movies. Can, yeah, and of course Sunset. I'm not going to leave that out. They're like three-way tie as far as I'm concerned. Mine's Sabrina. I, I love, love Sabrina. Sabrina. Sabrina's oh. one of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> I love Sabrina. It's so charming. It would be Sunset Boulevard for me too. I'm surprised nobody said Double Indemnity. I look. I love film. Double Indemnity, but like he's got uh, so many. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. So yeah, so many great Billy Wilder films out there. One of the best of all time. 
Uh, oh man. Okay. Lindy Erickson asks, what is everyone's biggest film blind spot? <laughs> Spill the beans, people. Spill the beans. Okay. I guess like, I'll go first. I'll go first because I got one that I think is going to shock everybody here. I'm ready. I have never seen a single Fellini movie. Wait, what? <laughs> wow. Not even a movie. Like, like, like n- nope. not one. Nope. Not a but single have you one. seen nine? That's not a Fellini movie, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> L- listen, listen, I, I oh got to wait. Hold on, Josh, I got to ask. Is, is it something personal against the guy or? No, it's nothing personal. It's just for whatever reason, that is just a filmography that I just have not easily come across. Like it has to be something I have to actively seek out and. There's a lot of movies out there, and I just haven't gotten to it. I I have a recording of like eight and a half somewhere that I've been meaning to get to, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. And I it, and, and I also like at this point, it's almost like a badge of honor that I'm trying to wear. I was like, let's see how far I can go without seeing a Fellini movie until I eventually break down. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> so follow that. <laughs> Kaya, I know you're like new to the game here, so I know you've got plenty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have some, um, and I readily admit that. Yeah. I've never seen a Francis Ford Coppola film. A? Like n- none? I've never seen any. None. My lord. <laughs> lord have mercy on my soul. I know. It's not so, a total blind spot, but I have not seen as many Spike Lee films as I feel like I ought to have. Like, I've never seen Do the Right Thing. And that is one that I plan on working on soon. So my biggest one for the longest time was Back to the Future, which I recently fixed. What? (laughs) So I finally got around to watching that. So that's no longer my answer anymore. Now I would say my answer is probably... So I have like a blind spot for like 80s action films. I really only kind of started watching watching like 90s action films and above. So like I've never seen uh, like Commando or Predator or really like anything starring Sylvester Stallone during that time. Wait, Matt, you haven't seen Predator? <laughs> no, I've only ever seen clips of it. Wow. I haven't either. Yeah. So from like beginning to end, never seen Predator. Hmm. It's interesting because like. Predator, it exists in that era of 80s action movies, but because it has like this, you know, alien monster in it, it kind of gets elevated as something a bit different from those yeah. other genre films. Yeah, yeah. I have I have two because the first one is very weird and very specific to me because I love movie musicals and I love um, the Oscars, but I have never seen Gigi. Oh, yeah. Uh, ditto. Ditto. Yeah. Okay, but that's so weird for Dan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that one's very specific to me. And the other one, like, what I would say is my actual, like, biggest blind spot if we're talking, like, you know, seriously great films. And there's a reason for this. I have never seen Lawrence of Arabia. Dan, you, there was a perfect opportunity. There was a perfect opportunity when Josh and I reviewed it on the pod. <laughs> the reason for that is... <laughs> That I made a promise to myself a long time ago that I would only watch it on a movie screen. Like, I would only see it in a theater on the biggest screen possible and, if possible, in the 75 millimeter. That's fair. I'll give you that. I just have not 
had the opportunity to do that yet. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say I love this question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we all have them. We all have those blind spots oh, yeah. that, you know, like nobody's perfect. So it's always good to get that out in the open. <laughs> And if you haven't seen Some Like It Hot, then you didn't get that reference. Um, <laughs> James Robert Scott asks, after Tenet was delayed for two weeks, do you think Mulan will still stick to its 24th uh, July release date? It's so hard to say that now. If things keep going the way they're going, I don't think either will stay where they are, frankly. No. It's very Disney hard Plus to say. Disney Plus is already moving uh, the one and only Ivan or they're moving it out of theaters and to Disney Plus. I don't think they're going to do that with Mulan, but I would actually be surprised if Mulan stuck with July 24th. Okay. Two games to finish it off. Jacob Kleinberg asks, I'm going to give you three actors, three actresses. He wants to know their best film performance and their best decade in their career overall. Ooh. First up, Paul Newman. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the... I mean, the best decade, I think, has to be the 60s. Yeah, it seems pretty obvious. But I think his best performance, if you ask me, is The Verdict. Oh, he is so yeah. good in The Verdict. I yeah, he was really good in The Verdict. Oh. But yes, best but decade, like, 60s, best performance, The Verdict. I don't even know if I'd say that is best. I mean, Hustler, HUD, Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy. Yeah, it's the 60s. It's so... Yeah. I do love his performance in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, though. Yeah, that's what I'm actually leaning towards. Like, I, I think was, I'd say that and then 60s for the decade. I was going to say HUD, I think. Next up, Spencer Tracy. Mm. Well, I guess the decade that he won consecutive Oscars probably is the best yeah. one for him. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, the 30s or the 40s, because the 40s is when he started the Catherine Hepburn collaborations. Yeah. And I think those are his, those are my, well, no, no, no. I take that back. Uh, Father of the Bride is his best performance. Mm. Father of the Bride is great. My favorite performance of his would either be Desk Set or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, I do. I do like him in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Right. He's really sweet in that movie. And I know that movie is Relic, but, you know, he and Catherine Hepburn really. And it's his last performance. Yeah, yeah. He, he got a posthumous nomination. Yeah. Has anyone here seen Judgment at Nuremberg? Yes. Excellent. I mean, the whole cast is amazing in that. Yeah. But, yeah. Everybody's great yeah. Everyone's great in that movie. Okay. Uh, next one. James Stewart. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Vertigo. Yeah. It's got to be what? Vertigo. Or just to be different, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I mean, that's I a very close one to Vertigo for that me, too. Is yeah, like best performance by anyone in anything ever. Territory. I, <laughs> I would say his best decade is the 40s. Yeah. I also would say in terms of my favorite performance, like not his best, but my favorite, I'd have to say the Philadelphia story. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's such a delight in that. Yes. I could watch it over and over all day long. <laughs> Although, wait a minute, I could make an argument maybe for the 50s with his work with uh, Hitchcock and Rear Window, Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, but I, I, probably the 40s, yeah. yeah. You just like the greatest show on Earth. And now the women. Catherine Hepburn. Line in Winter. Line in Winter. Absolutely. Unanimous. Her best decade is... Oh, that's tricky. 
That's really hard That's because hard. she was just great all the way through. Now. Like all the ones that she was working, bam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. Maybe the 50s? I was going to say the 60s. 60s are pretty good. So are the 40s. <laughs> Don't say the I'm... 90s for love affair. <laughs> God, no. Oh, I'd say the 50s. Yeah. You got African Queen, Summertime, and The Rainmaker as her Oscar nominations, and that's just the start of it. You also have Pat and Mike. Suddenly Last Summer. Yeah, Suddenly Last Summer. Yeah, I think the 50s. Just for Suddenly Last Summer alone. (laughs) Although the 60s, you got Long Day's Journey into Night and The Lion in Winter. Like, oh. Yeah, I mean, Lion in Winter is like a Trump card, you know? Yeah, it's true. This <laughs> is also when she was doing all that Shakespeare theater work. So, like, yeah. she just truly was winning at everything. Perfectly. Betty Davis. Best decade is the 30s. Best performance, all but Eve. Yeah. I think I'd agree. Yeah. 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 As much as I, like, want to say Now Voyager or Dark Victory or Guest, uh, I mean, uh, Baby Jane, it's all about Eve. Yeah. Oh, she's so great in Dark Victory. I do love that movie. And last one, Audrey Hepburn. It's actually illegal to make me choose. <laughs> Best decade is the 50s. I kn- Well, the 60s was pretty good, yeah. too, though. Yeah, 60s is pretty solid. But well. she's got... Wait until dark. <sighs> That's hard. All right, maybe, maybe I will go with the 60s, yeah. Honestly, with Audrey Hepburn, I'm still salty that... Julie Andrews wasn't cast as Eliza Doolittle, but she is a very good Eliza Doolittle. She really is. It, uh, it, and it's not her fault that they decided to dub over her singing. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, no, the singing is just, I don't want to say a small part of the movie because it's a musical, but it's a three hour movie and she's not singing for all of it. And she gives mm-hmm. a very heartfelt performance. I Although think my favorite performance of hers is Sabrina. Well, I, my favorite performance. Um, I think her best decade is the 60s. I, I think it is. Yeah. Looking yeah. over the movie she was making, I would say the 60s. But like, and as much as I will go to bat for Wait Till Dark from here to eternity, I the nun story, if y'all haven't seen it, she is just beyond. I agree. Yeah. And Mickey Rooney aside, I love Breakfast at Tiffany's and think that's a terrific performance. It's iconic for a reason. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. I love her in Roman Holiday too. Yeah, in the Children's That's Hour. Where she won. Oh. Children's yeah, Hour. I was gonna say oh. the Children's Hour. Snubbed. So good. All right, and we're gonna end it with Ethan May. Craft categories. God. Choose what movie the crafts person should have won an Oscar for, but you are knowingly replacing the winner of that year. First up, cinematographer Caleb Deschanel. Ooh. Let's see, cinematographer. <sighs> this, a lot of good stuff here. This is a little bit. Uh, tricky um because i'm not going to give it to him for the right stuff over fanny and alexander uh i can't give it to him for the natural over the killing fields uh i think i could actually yeah i could really i mean i don't know like there are moments in the natural that are so iconic to me i mean him running on the field with the lights you know blaring out like that's that's pretty iconic, right? You know there. what's one I could do? I, I, I think I could do uh, Passion of the Christ over uh, Robert Richardson for The Aviator. No, I love The Aviator. Aviator. I don't want to take that away. I do too, but Robert Richardson's got enough Oscars. Yeah, but the colors that he uses there I think are so impressive. Not for uh, National Treasure that year? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> 
Hold on. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking at something. His filmography is fascinating because he's got things like The Patriot and The Passion of the Christ, and then he's got uh, like Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Oh, Got to get that paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say give it to him for the Black Stallion, but that was Apocalypse Now. The oh, one no, that no, no. I can't. I can't change. Yeah, that. no. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I'm not saying this is my answer, but what would you do if I said rules don't apply? I would kill you. Plain and simple. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Don't worry, everyone. I'm going with uh, the natural. Next one. Robert Yeaman. Oh, um, the what's his face is? Um, <laughs> Wes Anderson, cinematographer of choice. Yeah. yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel is his only nomination. Right. And Birdman won that year, and I don't think I would take that away. Yeah, but Chivo's got three in a row. Yeah, but it was a one shot. Yeah, was it though? <laughs> I look. It, I, I'd I'd go there. I'd, I'll do it. I'll, I would I would do that too, actually. If that's I the only agree. choice, I'll go for it. But you know, uh, you know, I I think I would actually say Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, I think that's a better shot film up against weaker competition. Yeah, and li- I, don't, I don't agree with Life of Pi's win at all, personally, so... Yeah, no. All right, that's a nice... 2018, Mamma Mia, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going with uh, the Moonrise Kingdom option. At least, at least then, yeah, it's not as hard yeah. of a choice to make. I'm going to take it away from uh, Lord of the Rings and give it to him for Royal Tenenbaums. See, I wanted to do that, but I can't take it away from Lord of the Rings that year can't yeah, but do you have it. two more years you could give it to lord of the rings can't do it the first one is the best <laughs> the first one is the best cinematography wise i agree uh next up bruno del Benel. oh there's uh, some good like ones i can't believe he doesn't have an oscar that's a crime now here's the really really funny thing i just said that lord of the rings for uh fellowship of the Rings is the best shot one and yeah i don't think i would take it away from that but amelie i mean yeah <laughs> yeah although honestly i think i would really give it to him for the Harry Potter movie that he shot. The Half-Blood Prince is oh, a good looking movie. Yeah. 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 It's a gorgeous mm-hmm. film. That, and that would be over Avatar, so yeah, sign me up. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wait, I refuse to take it away from Gravity, but Inside Lewin Davis is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, I lied before. I would absolutely give it to him, and he got a nomination for this for Best Cinematography in 2004 for a very long engagement over The Aviator. Ooh. That way, The Lord of the Rings can keep its Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bellhaus. Oh, God. Ugh. So many good ones. My what God. a great cinematographer. Um, but I think this through. Yeah. Fuck what one? He was nominated for Broadcast News, and he lost. Fabulous Baker Boys. Good fellas. That's what I'm giving it to him. Baker Boys. Just the shot of Michelle Pfeiffer and the piano alone. It's Good Fellas. <sighs> or Bram Stoker's Dracula. He wasn't even nominated Fuck for Good Fellas. That's crazy. I ooh. What one in '93? Uh, Schindler's List. Schindler's, Schindler's List. List. Okay, yeah, I was gonna try and give it to him for The Age of Innocence, but I could. Here's a, uh, I don't know. What won cinematography in 1985? 85. Uh, out of Africa. Was, out, yes. All right. After hours it is. Come on. You wouldn't give it to him for Goodfellas? I mean, to me, that's like, the, it's like the same thing. Because both Dances with Wolves and Out of Africa for me have like very similar epic sweeping type of cinematography, you know, where it won just based on the fact that it was like shooting over uh, large landscapes and shit. So 
I love that I just threw and shit on there. Like, oh, I'm so eloquent <laughs> with my words. Um, so. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, either one. I would do either After Hours or Goodfellas. Either one's fine. So what's wrong with Baker Boys over Glory? It, I like Glory a lot. I think Glory is really well shot, especially that final sequence. Yeah. I, I actually want to... I really want to reward him for one of his collaborations with uh, Fassbender. Ooh. But mm, yeah. I, I don't actually know that I would. <laughs> like, the those, the 70s yeah. was such a good decade for cinematography. Like Fox and his friends look so good. I saw Bitter Tears of Petro von Kant. The, the, the way he manages to shoot everything that takes place in that one room yeah, is yeah. just insane. And then the last one, Matthew Libatique. Black Swan. Yeah, Black Swan. Yeah. Even though it should have gone to Roger Deakins for True Grit, he didn't win, so I'll take it away from Inception any day. Call me crazy. A star is born. You're not crazy. That is a very close one for me. Gorgeous looking film. I, uh, man, this is, I guess, well, I don't know, because I really like the Inception cinematography. I don't think I could say that. Um... This is this is tough, actually. Um, okay, fine. What about the fountain? Two thousand six. Yeah, that's over Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, you know what, Matt? I'm going to go with the Star Is Born. I'm going to join you there because I don't want to take it away from Roger Deakins. I went and saw that chance, even though he didn't actually win it. That's tough because I would also consider giving it to him for Requiem for a Dream, but Traffic is. Traffic won that year, right? No, uh, Crouching Tiger did. Oh, yeah, even still can't, yeah, can't take yeah. it away from that, even less. So, And then I was thinking about Mother, but that's 2017 and Deacons is first and doesn't feel like yeah. I can do that. No. Mm, no. Oh, you know what, Dan? What about Chirac? He shot that movie. That's 2015. I mean, that was Chivo's third. I would consider it. I don't, I don't know. The cinematography is not my favorite part of that movie. Like, it's good, but I don't know that I'd say that it's great. Yeah, The issue that I'm having is that he's shot a lot of really great movies, but I just cannot take it away from the person that he lost to that year. Well, he's shooting the prom. Yeah. And he's going to win the Oscar this year for Birds of Prey. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be mad. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, yeah. All right. That'll do it here uh, for this week's episode on the Next Best Picture podcast. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Kaya, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, Tell everyone that's listening where they can find you on the internet. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at FilmLesbian, and you can find my writing at Obscure Media and Scratch Cinema. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here once again. Michael, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at mschwartz95. Nicole Ackman? I am at Nicole Ackman. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dan on Film. And Josh Parham. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 198 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.